Do you know what a sacred cow is? Um, some say it comes out of Hinduism, where they, you know, literally sacred cows. And uh, I, when I think of it, I think of uh, Exodus, when uh, the Israelites made a golden calf, you know, a sacred cow. And, uh, and I think of it in terms of those things, then, that we tend to create uh, in, in an effort to worship God or please God, but, um, but which God really hasn't commanded or desired. It may even be contrary to what he's commanded. It's a, it's a cow of our making, um, and in a sense, it's sacred, becomes part of our worship or thinking of our religion, but it's not what God has commanded or desired. Uh, and when they made that calf, they weren't making a separate God. They were representing the true God by, by a calf, <laughs> sacred cow. Um, and the thing about sacred cows is that to God's people, they're often sacred, um, and they're hard to get rid of because they're sacred. Uh, they're things we have come to value and have emotional attachment to. God is not really all that interested in our sacred cows, um, other than he'd really rather we didn't have any. Um, we're in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 23. We'll be talking about a false and a true spirituality. True spirituality when our whole life and worship is conformed to the word of God. And a false spirituality when, when we have rules of worship and conduct that we place in ourselves and others that... That God has not asked us. It's an attempt to earn God's favor through rules and practices and things that God has not himself commanded. Colossians chapter 2. Hear then the word of God. Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Or with regard to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. So let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, a denying of yourself, a worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, being puffed up without reason by their sensuous mind, not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together through its joints and its ligaments, and it grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to the regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish when they're used? According to human precepts and human teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that is living and true. Father, we ask that you would speak it to our hearts and our minds with clarity. And as as we hear it, we pray that you would help our lives to come into conformity to it. That you would help us to see ourselves and and our golden cows and our uh, sacred cows, the things that we cling to that are not according to your word. 
that you have not commanded and that you not have, have not required or asked of us. Help us to be free, free to follow Christ, free to live according to your word in purity and in truth. For in Jesus' name we ask, amen. That true spirituality when our whole life and worship is conformed to the word of God. And that's what true spirituality it is. And it is, it is about God's word and all that he has revealed there and conforming our lives, our, our inner lives and our outer lives to the word of God in our worship and in our living. But there is a false spirituality that is a religion of human achievement. It is the constant plague of all true religion is the religion of human achievement. And it places rules of worship and conduct on ourselves and on other people that go beyond the teaching of Scripture. And the second way that that gets applied then when we create rules and we create things and and add things to what God has, has asked of us, required of us, that often then we live in this sense of, of attempting to earn God's favor through those things. We think that we are more pleasing to God because of them. And so we can tend to look down on others who don't also partake of these rules in ways of worship. So the Pharisees, we all know the Pharisees are the, are the, the epitome of this kind of a thing. They're these zealous Jewish leaders that are captured in the Scripture in the time of Jesus. These are guys who are passionate about holiness. They're passionate about a, a living a life that is pleasing to God. And so they've got that part of it right. But what happens is that they begin to believe that the way to please God and the way to make it to heaven is by meticulously keeping a bunch of rules. The relationship became about law and not about a relationship of the God they worship. They began to believe the wrong things. And this all starts out with the Mosaic Law. It starts with Scripture. It starts out in the Old Testament. You know, they're given a bunch of laws. We have not only the Ten Commandments, but as they meticulously wrote them down, there are at least 613 other commands in the Old Testament. And so now they've got this list It's not a bad thing to do to have that list, to know what it is God has commanded so that we might seek to obey it according to the Scripture and what He has given us. So so it it starts out in in a, a positive way, but over time they begin to collect then what they call the midrash. Commentaries, a collection of sermons, of sayings, of opinions of the rabbis. And so this next to the Bible, this growing collection of opinions and ideas begins to develop. And it exists there right next to it. And, and out of those opinions and these ideas, they began to make more rules, thousands of new rules, new commands, regulations, originally meant to help. But the problem were that they were just like verse 22 that we just read. They were according to human precepts and teachings. They went beyond the teaching of Scripture. A well-known example of this, many of you have probably heard it many times, is, is the Sabbath keeping. You know, and they wanted to keep, the, you know, one of the commandments, just one of them. You know, you shall honor, you know, the Lord's day. You shall honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. And so they wanted to do that. And what they did was, and then they said, yeah, well, what does it look like to do that? We're not supposed to work and we're supposed to honor it. So they decided, you know, well, what does it mean to work? And they, they, they actually developed 39 categories of different kinds of work so that you knew exactly what work was. 
when that day came around. 39 different categories of work, and then each category had subcategories, you know, of, of things that, that were work underneath there. And then each one of those then began to have regulations and rules about what you can and can't do, defining very clearly and carefully to the point of, you know, when they go to write letters and they, you know, they're deciding, well, writing letters, I mean, that could be, I don't know, is that work or not work? It becomes a category of work or, or not quite work unless you write too many letters, you know, so now you can write this many letters, but if you go one more than that, now you've started to work. Right? It was like, you know, you can carry some stuff in your pockets on the Sabbath. You know, like if you carried a pebble, that was okay. But if you carried a rock, now that's heavier. You know, you're starting to work. Right? And so they start literally to define, you know, what, what it looks like. So many subcategories. How many steps can you take on the Sabbath? I got a Fitbit for Christmas. They would have loved this. <laughs> Tells me how many steps I take. Right, and so this is their concern. On the Sabbath, you can only take so many steps. I mean, you got to take a certain amount of steps. Well, if you start taking too many steps, now you're working, you know. So they would define, and we would get these rules, right, thousands of sub-rules, right? They were, in a sense, and take this in the right way, uh, in a sense, holier than God. Because he only had 613 rules. (laughs) We got thousands. How pleased he must be with us. But he's not. He's not impressed. They're not any holier for making up rules and keeping them. That we're not required of them. And you and I, you and I might say, who would dare to add rules and expectations and put them on God's people? Who would do such a thing? Right? I can't be so obvious these guys are, are, are out of the park on this one, right? They, who would do this? I mean, uh, you know, Revelation ends with that, you know. <laughs> Cursed is anyone who adds anything to this, right? And cursed is anyone who takes away. And, you know, we apply that to all of Scripture. I think that was true. Cursed is the one who adds. Who would add? Why would we do such a thing? Legalism. It has the appearance of wisdom. That's what he says in verse 23, isn't it? You know, these things have indeed an appearance of wisdom. They sound good. They make a certain sense. They're logical, right? They're, they're not, you know, they're, you, you can follow a logic that they have, that they're, that they're arriving where they are in this self-made religion. And, you know, I remember early when I was a, a young Christian, you know, just thinking of a few of these things in, uh, in the circles I was running in at the time, what was quoted to me all the time was, your body is a temple. That's not even a command. That's just a propositional truth. But you can make a lot of rules out of that. And they did. Right? Your body is a temple. Well, what does that mean? Well, you start thinking about what you can put in it, what you can eat, what you can do. First two things on his list, what you can eat, what you can drink. And they start passing judgment on those things. You know, what, you know, and things about your hair, things what you can put on your body or not put on your body or the way you decorate it or not, you know, and the, all the rules. Your body's a temple, you know. And, and, it, and, and so the rules began. I, my first church that I was in, you know, there was this sense of all these rules of what it means to keep that. One I hear of late is, you know, God wants your best. The problem with that one, number one, is the Bible never actually says that. Uh, number two, the things that are sort of like that, you know, where you could kind of get away with it, I don't think that they mean what people mean when they say this. Whatever you do, do it with all your heart is unto the Lord. 
Um, you know, I don't know that that means when, when people say God wants your best, you know, they begin to make a list of what people ought to do. If God wants your best, what does that mean? Let me give you a list. And then we start telling people what they ought to do. And then we, we, we impose it on ourselves and we start looking at other people and like, dude, is that your best? You know, and we start, and we, do we not? Come on now. We justify putting expectations on ourselves and other people's. And then if a neighborhood kid came in and he had, I don't know, tats and piercings, his hair was funny, his clothes were different, do we look down on him? Do we judge him? Do we make him feel uncomfortable? You know, what are the ways? Well, hell, he'll come around. We'll get him straightened out, you know, because his body's a temple. And, dude, you know, we, we start, you know, thinking or, 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 you know, what the gospel becomes confused, does it not? When all of these things become the things that we're concerned about. Here's the gospel, right, that we need to get to people and that we need for our own souls. When all this stuff starts encrusting it, you know, it's hard to see the gospel anymore. That kid walks in the door. Who cares? Right? He needs to know Jesus. And do you think Jesus is all that concerned about this stuff we're concerned about? I don't think he, at least not according, you know, do you see the rule there? Do you see the thing that we're, I'm told, oh, dude, you're compromising with the culture. You know, when you do that, you change something that's in the church, and it's been in the church, sacred cow. And it's been in the church, and dude, you're changing something. You're compromising with the culture. I would say, no, I'm swapping old culture for new culture. Right? You understand the thing, a lot of those things that we're switching are not things that are required by God. They're not there. They're, they're just cultural ways that we did it or expressed it or handled it or whatever because we need culture and we have to express it and handle it. And there may come a time to express it and handle it differently. But you're not compromising with culture to swap old culture for new if what you're swap, swapping isn't a biblically compromised thing, something that God required. Now, if it's something God required, that's a whole other animal. Human teaching and practice. We call it tradition. It's not wrong until we start thinking God requires it. The logic of legalism. You know the legalism started on page 2 of the Bible? Genesis 3 is on page 2 of my Bible. And in Genesis 3, we get this story of the fall, right? And God gives Adam and Eve a commandment. You should not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. And, and then the serpent comes to Eve in chapter 3, and he says, Did God say, don't eat of the fruit of the tree? And she says, Oh, yes, the Lord said, Genesis 3, 3, You shall not eat of the free tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. What? Lest you die. It's just a little addition. It might even be helpful to not touch it if you don't want to end up eating it. But he didn't say, see, when you quote God, I'm just going to make a suggestion. When you quote God, I will be careful to get him right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <clears throat> you know, the neither shall you touch it. There's a logic to that. And, and in some places, there may be even the choice that Eve makes to say, you know what, I'm going to choose not even to touch it because I might end up eating it. It looks good. You know, but in the end, we still have to say, if somebody does touch it, if Adam picks it up and throws it in the air and juggles with it, and, you know, puts, he didn't sin. God didn't say don't touch it. But this is what we do. Well, I don't want to touch it because I don't want to end up going beyond it. There's a logic to legalism. X is not forbidden. If we do this, and we'll say, X, touching the fruit, not forbidden in the Bible. X plus is, eating the fruit's forbidden. X is not forbidden. X plus eating the fruit is forbidden. 
And we say, oh, well, if people do X, touch it, well, then they might go beyond what is permissible. They might do X plus. They might eat the fruit. <laughs> X plus is forbidden. That would be a terrible thing. When people do X plus, lives are ruined, right? Lives are ruined. Families are ruined. Problems happen. X plus is a terrible thing. Therefore, Christians should not do X. They should not even touch it. Now we have a law that we impose on ourselves and others. It's on equal par with God's word. We do it all the time. Even the logic you use it would say with driving. Driving is X. It's, it's, it's permitted. You're allowed to drive. But if people drive, they might speed and drive recklessly. And if you drive recklessly, you cause accidents. And if you cause accidents, you ruin lives. That's X plus. You know, you're allowed to drive. That's X. But, but if you, they, might, they might do more than that. They might go beyond what is permitted and drive recklessly. And when you drive recklessly, you have accidents. And lives are ruined and families are ruined. And therefore, Christians shouldn't do X. You see the logic? If you, if you apply it consistently, and what you'll see is we use that logic everywhere. But we don't apply it consistently. We pick and choose on the things that are our sacred cows. And we go beyond what God has said. I'll give you one, and here's where, when, here's the thing when you step on somebody's sacred cow, <laughs> they do not like it. And so I knew I was going to get in trouble this morning, but here we go. We'll just get started. Um, <laughs> I'm going to say gambling. Have you ever read the Bible? Can you give me one verse in the Bible that mentions gambling, positively or negatively? Anywhere where gambling is forbidden, anywhere where it says that you should never use money in that way or anything like that. It doesn't prohibit it. You know, when I grew up, my, my grandma and my mom and my aunts um, all played this card game. It's similar to phase 10. I think it was phase 10 before it got a box and somebody made a million dollars on it. We played it before then, but when we played it, everybody who played had to get 10 dimes and put them in the pot. So my mom and my grandma, my aunts and myself and friends, we all put it the, in there, and when you won one of the 10 phases, you got a dime out. And whoever won the last, you know, at the last hand won the whole thing, got the whole pot. We might play it two or three times a night, so there might have been a few bucks involved in it. I don't know. But if you play cards for money, you might go beyond what is permissible. You might, you might end up in bad stewardship. You might, you, might, you might use so much money that you actually have become irresponsible and a bad steward. And some people become addicted to gambling. And we know that gambling and addiction to gambling can ruin lives and families, and therefore Christians shouldn't do X. They should never play cards for money. It should never be involved. But I just simply ask the question, did God say that? And then the silence, everybody's like, oh boy, <laughs> wish he hadn't said that. I'm just putting out there, you know, at least in the areas, you know, we should have some humility and a certain amount of being careful of imposing what God has not imposed, or at very least it's not clear to me when you read through it. So he lists through, this is what this whole passage is about. It lists all these things, you know, food and drink, the festival, the new moon, the Sabbath. He starts with those do's and don'ts of food and drink. In those days, there was meat that was sacrificed to idols in the Greek culture, in the Roman culture, Greco-Roman culture. And, uh, and so when you went to the marketplace to buy meat, you know, a lot of it had been sacrificed to my idols first, and then they sell it to you, and you buy it and eat it. And so Christians were saying, ah, oh, that meat was sacrificed to idols and to, you know, demons, and so you can't eat it. It's tainted, and so there's this whole thing. And Paul says, it's meat. Eat it. 
but other people's consciences weren't, you know, there was this thing that went on, and, you know, there was, uh, vegetarianism was in, in, in Colossae, as you read the commentators at this time, and so some were saying, I mean, and you've heard that, you know, it's the Genesis diet, or the Daniel diet, you know, it's the biblical diet, um, you know, the way we're supposed to eat. The problem of drunkenness, food and drink, the problem of drunkenness is perennial, since I think the Sumerians, you know, in the earth, some of the earliest were brewing beer. And, and wine. And so it, it, the problem of drunkenness goes back to the beginning of time. And so we say X, drunkenness is forbidden. It's clearly forbidden in the scripture. Drunkenness, X plus, is forbidden. X isn't forbidden. Drinking isn't forbidden. But drunkenness is forbidden. X plus is forbidden. And therefore, when people do X plus, you know, that it, 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 you know, they can go beyond and they can become addicted and it causes problems in lives and families. And therefore, you shouldn't do X. Did God say don't do X? John Piper, commenting on this passage and this issue, says this. God hates legalism as much as he hates alcoholism. God hates legalism as much as he hates alcoholism. See, the Bible's answer to X plus, which is a problem, is never to forbid X. It just never works that way. X plus is a problem, and God forbids X plus, and he calls us to live lives free from X plus, but he never does it by forbidding X. If God wanted to forbid X, he would have, and it would be the X plus, but it's not, according to the scripture. Religious observances and festivals, new moons and the Sabbath, these are all Old Testament things, you know, that, that are there. And you can, these guys who are, a lot of these guys are Jewish converts to Christianity. So they're feeling about these things as we grew up with these things. These festivals, we grew up celebrating these festivals. They're sentimental to me. It's part of my religious observance. I like the festivals. We should keep doing the festivals. We need to keep doing the festivals, right? It should be part of our religion. And, and so there is this, we've always done it this way, and it's hard that it is no longer required. It's difficult for them to give up. But we need to realize that God hates legalism thinking that we are more acceptable to God or superior to others based on things that God has not said, has not regulated in the ways that we will regulate it for him and for each other. Paul's concern in this passage is the freedom of the Christian. His concern in this whole passage and in this whole book is the freedom of the Christian through the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and his gospel. And that it is about Christ and knowing him and loving him and walking with him. And in chapters 1 and 2, he has presented this, this exalted view of Christ who is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. And in, and in verse 9 of this chapter, he says that in Christ, all the fullness of God dwells in Christ. And in verse 10, he says, and you have been filled too with him. And he gives this picture of of a spiritual reality of who God is and who he is in Christ and how we are in Christ. In John 14, 20, Jesus says, In that day you will know that I am in my Father and that I am in you and you are in me. Right? You are in Christ and Christ is in you. 
And you are this mutual indwelling in him and him in you. And you are in God because he says, I am in the Father and he is in me. And he gives us this picture of this spiritual reality. And I would suggest that we focus the whole energy of our spiritual lives presence and the power of an indwelling Christ and all the fullness of God that is ours in him. It is Christ in you that is the hope of glory. And we don't have to help him. We don't have to create, whether in our worship or in our personal lives, we don't have to help him. We need to focus the whole energy of our lives, I think, on knowing this Christ and his indwelling presence and power. Galatians 5.1 says it is for freedom. That Christ has set us free. And stand firm then and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. To the imposition of human regulations and human requirements. And the idea that God is more pleased with us if we add these things and do these things. And obey things that he has not required. They obscure the pure gospel. As I was saying, if the gospel is here and we add all this stuff as we encounter the world and try to give the gospel to the world, all of this stuff gets in the way because we're bumping up with people in terms of the, what they're doing or not doing and the way that they're dressed. And, and the reality is that it's, it's not even about things that the Bible has addressed. He says, let no one pass judgment on you, verse 16. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you. Let no one pass judgment on you regarding the things that are not required by God. He's not saying that believers and the church leadership should not confront legitimate biblical concerns, things that the scripture has clearly said and God has clearly forbidden, and that the church and we should be very concerned about biblical holiness. That is different than being slaves to the perceptions of others in human practices and rules and impositions. And he says, let no one disqualify you. Let no one look down on you or weigh down on you and add to the gospel in your life. Your trust in Christ alone for your righteousness. William Hendrickson, a classical reformed commentator, says, let no ritualist tell you since you are not following my rules and regulations, you are unfit or unworthy. Let no one disqualify you or make you feel unfit because you don't obey their sense abilities. We stand before God. Our acceptance is based on the sufficiency, and that's what this whole book is about, the sufficiency of Christ and Christ alone, and his gospel, and his presence, and his power in our lives. His perfect life and obedience, his death and resurrection, the imputation of his righteousness. We stand before him complete and accepted and righteous with the righteousness of Christ, and it's a fully complete righteousness. And so in verse 20, why, if you died with Christ to the powers of this world, why do you live as slaves? Now, let me end with these notes, because whenever you hear things like this, the human heart always goes to the other, falls off the other side of the pony. Uh, you know, like if you're over here and you say, God hates legalism, you know, then we end over here with lawlessness. Well, all right then, right? We can do whatever we want. I hear you, I hear you, right? This is what 
Paul, Romans 1 to 5, preaches the gospel, and he starts Romans 6 with the question, what shall we say then with this free gospel of grace in Jesus Christ? Shall we go on sinning? No. No, you're not hearing me. <laughs> Paul says, God forbid, you know, that we go on sinning. I'm not, I, you know, heaven forbid, make no mistake about it. God is holy. God is holy. And he has called you to holiness. He has called you to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus, who is himself the image of the invisible God. We're not talking about having a low regard for biblical holiness. We're saying, let your holiness be biblical. You hear me on that? That's the whole point. I'm not saying that we should have a low regard for biblical holiness. I am saying, let your holiness be biblical. That starts in a full identity in Jesus Christ. And then is conformed to his image according to those things he has revealed and given to us in his word. Not one step beyond. 2 Corinthians 7.1 says, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. And let us bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. We are called to a complete holiness inside of body and spirit, inside and outside, to the image of Christ. Holiness is God's intention for you and his intention for me. Paul's point in this whole thing is that the law will not save you and make you holy. It can do neither. The law cannot save you or make you holy. It can do neither. Only Christ can do it. We will create hedges. We'll have things in our lives. I have a whole bunch of crazy rules in my life that aren't in the Bible, but they're for me. You know, I have a rule, like when I come down on certain mornings, I have to go in the living room and not the family room. Because the family room is where the computer is and where the TV is and all those things that distract me and eat up my time and do that thing. So, but my chair with all my books and my quiet time stuff's in the living room. And so a lot of mornings I'll come down and get my coffee and I won't even let myself go in that room because I want to have a quiet time. And I know if I go in there, I probably won't. Right? And so there is, you know, but it's just for me. This is just a, it's not a rule that you have to have a quiet time before you do anything else. It's not a rule that you can't go in the, family, in the room where the TV. These are for me. And you will have tons of those twos. You may choose not to do X. You just need to understand that X is not required by God. Right? Uh, not doing X. You may choose in the X, that thing which is, which is permissible. You may choose not to do it. But only because you find that it helps you. And there are people that shouldn't do X. And you need to know yourself and what it takes for you to pursue holiness. But those are things that we do in our lives to help us be holy. They're not required by God, and they're not imposed on others. I close with the thought in Paul's point in this whole, in verse 19, I think that he is the problem that leads to all of this. He says, the problem with these folks is that they're not holding fast to the head. They're not holding fast to the Lord Jesus, through whom growth really takes place. They're leaning on the law. 
They're making rules. They're concerned about the externals. They're concerned about controlling behavior. They're concerned about all these things, and they think by asceticism and rule that we can, we can make ourselves holy. And he's saying that we get confused, and they're not holding fast to the head. And that is his point, to hold fast to the head from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together and grows with a growth that is from God. My friends, we need to hold fast to the head. We need to walk close to Jesus. The goal is to be like him, conform to his image, to know him, to love him, and to worship him. And I would suggest we need to spend all of our energy on knowing him and loving him and worshiping him and knowing his word and obeying his word and conforming our lives to his word. And not on any of those extraneous things that he has not commanded. Brothers, we were called to freedom. Galatians 5.13 Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. We are free. We're free to die to the flesh and to live in the Spirit. It is Christ in you that is the hope of glory. We're free to be full of His Spirit and to walk with Him and to please Him. We're free to be more like Christ. But the law will not help us. 1 Corinthians 6.12, Paul says this, and this is something I made early in my Christian life. My goal. All things are lawful for me, Paul says. That's where we need to start. For many of these things that are just not in the Scripture, all things are lawful for me that are not forbidden. Not all things are helpful, so we got to be wise in ourselves. All things are lawful to me, but I will not be dominated by anything. And I've made that my rule about anything. If I like any game or sport or pastime or any any habit, anything in my life, the goal is to be that I will not be dominated by anything but Jesus Christ. And make it the goal and the passion of your, your spiritual life to be dominated by Jesus, to bow the knee to him, to follow him, to serve him, to know him, to love him, for him to be your Lord and your King and your Master, and that nothing else would begin to even, be, if it begins to infringe on that, then you start exercising those things that will help you to be holy. My friends, let us spend more time seeking to be dominated by Jesus, holding fast to the head, than trying to manage our sin with the law. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus that it is Christ in us, the living and indwelling Jesus that is our life, our hope, our power, the grace, the shape of all that we are to be and to hope for. Help us to hold fast and to cling to our head, Jesus, to not get caught up, to not get caught up in all those things that simply distract us from a true knowledge of your word. We ask and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.